turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as you know, we have really been putting a lot of emphasis on how to teach you the Bible. And uh, starting a couple of weeks ago, we started to come through the Bible book by book. And I'm doing that so we can create for you an understanding of each book in the Bible, how it goes together, where it fits in, all the pertinent stuff that you need to be able to, uh, when you come to that book of the Bible, whatever it may be, to put it in your Bible, in your notes, and then that you'll have an understanding of, of how those things are done. You know those little bookmarks we gave out today? We're going to revise those, and uh, you all get one. But I, I, I have a Bible study over at Steve Brackeen's on Monday afternoon. Just a little short Bible study. It goes from, what, 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, 4.30. But anyway, they gave me an incredible idea. And we're going to, I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's a surprise. But I'm going, we're going to redo it. And we're going to give you something that will absolutely, you think these are worth a lot of money. Where do you see these? All to help you learn the Bible. And that's what we're all about here. And we've been coming through book by book. We're coming into the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book uh, in, in the, the writings of Moses. The uh, first five books of the Bible, commonly called the Pentateuch. And we have been trying to give you the information that you need. Now, I don't know how you do your Bible, but I want to give you a little insight in this morning. You need to take these notes. These notes that I'm giving you are what I call uh, a skeleton outline. They give you the basic overall picture of the Bible, and yet you're getting a lot of substance stuff in the chapters that are a great practical stuff and doctrinal stuff. You've got to remember that every one of the books of the Bible that you're gonna, we're going to get into have a historical application, it has a doctrinal application, and it has a practical application. And in the first five books of the Bible that we've come through, the historical application is very easy. We know that Genesis is the book of the beginnings. And we have seen how that everything gets started in Genesis. The creation and, and the formulation of the nation of Israel by the end of the book. And then uh, the next four books of the Bible uh, bring you through God calling them out of Egypt and God sending them to the promised land. It, those, those second four books cover the expanse of 40 years. And then we have a doctrinal application. You're going to find that in these books, over and over and over and over again, uh, prophetic passages. Prophetic in the sense that the theme of the Bible, as you already should know by now from our past studies, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to find that most of the Old Testament books, 75% or more of them, are prophetically, doctrinally dealing with that day, the second coming of Christ. So you're going to find passages that deal with the tribulation period. Passages that deal with the second coming. Passages that deal with the millennium. All of those aspects are found in not only the first five books of the Bible, but all the books throughout the Old Testament. And I, obviously there's no way I can do all of that as we're laying all that out, but I give you as much as I can. And then, of course, we have Thursday night where you can ask whatever questions you want to ask and also our own personal time where you can go through those things. And then there's an inspirational application. And the inspirational application will show you uh, principles for your life. Most people think that the Old Testament is boring. And the reason they think it's boring because most of the time that it's taught is only taught from the historical perspective. Most men, most people today, most Christians living in the day and age that we live in, they do not understand how that Old Testament is into your everyday life. 
And we focus on that a lot. We focus on the doctrine a lot. I try to give you a balance so that when I'm done with the book, that you are able to look at that, and next time you read it, you know what to look for, and you know what that book uh, is about. So the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy has 34 chapters. It has 958 verses and 28,461 words. And again, you'll see the importance of that as we get a little farther on in the Bible. Deuteronomy. Genesis talks about the beginnings. Now we see the state of man. We see that in Exodus it talks about the salvation of man, the redemption of man. In Leviticus we see, we see the standing of man, the priesthood. In the book of Numbers we see the spiritual warfare of the believer. We talked about that last week. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he pulls it all together. And by pulling it all together, and by Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, uh, which are commonly called the Law or the Pentateuch or the Writings, we begin to see how that uh, this book uh, really begins to show us some great principles that we need to understand. Now, as far as I'm concerned, years ago when I began to study this book, I saw that there were a couple of major things about this book that, that I had to see. And however you put your notes in your Bible, however you get it laid out, these a couple of things that I'm going to talk to you about this morning are absolutely essential. They are the foundational things that you're going to find within uh, this book that really help you pull it all together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. We love you. We ask you now, Lord, in a very special way to be with us today. Give us wisdom and insight as we teach your word. Help us to say those things that you have us to say. And Lord, uh, give these people a challenge in their heart as they learn your word. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of major things here that you have to see. I don't know if you know it or not, but there are certain laws in the Bible. And these laws are absolute. In fact, there's seven of them. And everything in the world and everything in the Bible operates by these laws. And you're going to find that these laws are non-negotiable. These laws are absolute. These laws are fixed. And if you want to figure things out in life, the way you do it is find out the things that are fixed in the Bible that are non-negotiable. The things, the principles in the Word of God that God lays down that are absolute. And then you base everything else that you learn in life off of those principles. And that's what's basically what you do uh, with the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a couple of things here that we need to see. One of the laws in the Bible that I've talked to you before is the law of first mention. And when you find something mentioned in the first time in the Bible, it usually defines it for you throughout the Word of God. And uh, we know that. And, uh, you know, the first time you find the devil showing up in the Bible, it's very significant. The first time you find God, uh, the Holy Spirit of God mentioned in the Bible, very significant. Those things will define for you not only what you're looking at, but define for you the course of action and define for you what those things mean through the rest of the Bible. The one thing about the Bible that you never want to forget, and that is the Bible's consistency. The Bible is consistent in everything that it does. It's not like another book that a man would write that has errors in it. When this book was put together, God's Holy Spirit preserved it, He inspired it, and He kept it without any human error in it. And you have the absolute perfect Word of God in your hand this morning that you can, you can figure all these things out. Now, is the law of first mention. There's also the law of second mention, or last mention. And I also sometimes call this the law of God's perspective. And it simply means this. The last thing any man writes in the Bible is very important. 
When you start coming through the Bible and you have an awareness of what's going on around the Bible that you're reading, you'll want to pay attention to this one fact. The last thing that a man writes in that Bible, or the last thing that he says, is usually very important. Now verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, These be the words of Moses, which Moses spake to all Israel. This book is different than the rest. This book is different from the rest because this book is nothing more than a series of sermons. It's nothing more than a, a series of, go, of Moses giving his perspective of what he's learned. Now, that's why everything a man says in the Bible for the last time is very important. Because what it does, it shows you what he's learned through the trials of his life. It allows you to see the perspective that he has gained by what he has went through. Now, every man in the Bible goes through the tough times like you and I do to find his relationship with God. There's never been a man, nor has there ever been a woman, that just got saved and then just went through life without any trials. And of course, you know why that is. The devil wants to stop you. The devil wants to discourage you. The devil will put things and people in your life to, this, to, to pull you away from what God wants you to have. And that's your warfare. That's why we said last week our job is to stand. We're to take a stand for God no matter, no matter what. And you're going to find that in the Bible, men are just like that. You're going to find it's also true in history. I mean, uh, when you go back and you, re you read great men of history, and I've always been a, a, a history major, especially military history. It's always been my, uh, my thing. And I, I've always read great biographies of great men, as far as the world's concerned. And you know what? I don't spend so much time uh, looking and reading about what they did. I learned very early on in my times in the Bible that I always go to find the last thing that they say. Because the last thing a man says before he dies... Or well, the last thing a man says before he uh, leaves is usually very important because it shows you his whole perspective of what he's learned, what he's been through. You know, we think of General MacArthur, a great general that really led the campaign through the uh, Philippine Islands during World War II. And you can talk about General MacArthur and how he was trapped on Corregidor and how he got out and his famous words, uh, you know, I shall return and all of that. But you know what? Anybody who reads his biography or knows anything about his life, you know what you remember about that man? You remember not the battles of Corregidor. You don't remember the times that he, he struggled uh, and, and went back. The thing that you remember about him was the last thing that he said when he was at West Point before he faded off the scene. You know what he said? He said, old soldiers never die. They just fade away. You know what that was? That was an incredible perspective of what he'd been through in life and what he understood. It's an incredible thing. Admiral Halsey, another great military mind uh, that uh, led great victories in the Pacific. When he retired, when he retired, they gave him a watch. And on that watch uh, was a little inscription. And that little inscription was given him by the men. And uh, that little inscription simply said this, lest we forget, lest we forget. And when he wrote his memoirs, you know what he said? At everything he said, at everything he wrote about the battles of Guadalcanal and, and all of the things that he took place and, and all the great events of his life, the thing that came down to was don't forget because in that remembering is a bond of men that paid the ultimate price for you and I to have what we enjoy today. Lest we forget John F. Kennedy back in the 60s. 
You know what? You, you, you think about all the things that he said and all the things that he did, the Bay of Pigs and all the things that he struggled with and, and, uh, and all of, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But you know what? When you think about John F. Kennedy, the thing that sticks in your mind is the, one, the last speech he ever gave when he simply said this, ask not what you can give to your country, or, but ask what country can do for you or what you can do for your country. That's everything, but he remembers the last thing that he said. William Booth, general in the Civil War, started a great organization, the Salvation Army. The last thing he said before he died, the last thing he said, one word, sums up everything that he was and that he did all of his life. It was simply the word, others. His whole life, why? It gave his perspective. And I'm telling you, I don't care whether it's in history, I don't care whether it's in the Bible. If you want to find out a perspective on it, then you find the last thing that a man said. Genesis chapter 49 is the last thing that Jacob says and he does. Very instructive. The last thing that Christ says to his disciples is in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Very instructive. The last thing that Paul writes and the last thing that Paul says is 1 and 2 Timothy. You got to look at it sometime. It gives you his perspective. And the last book in your Bible that God wrote Gives you God's perspective on everything. It's the book of Revelation. It comes right back through and takes you from all the way through uh, from the church age right on through to eternity and shows you every event. You know what it does? It gives you God's perspective on things. And when Moses writes, Moses writes and gives us in the book of Deuteronomy his perspective. And we see incredible things in this book. And we see some things that you need to remember and I need to remember and we all need to remember about what God is doing because the nation of Israel always had a problem remembering. And you and I as God's people, we always have a problem of remembering. So this book shows some incredible things and brings up some incredible truths about how the nation of Israel dealt with God historically, how they'll deal with God in the tribulation period doctrinally, but also in a practical sense, this book, chapter by chapter, is loaded, just like all the other we've looked at so far, of what, what God wants to do in your life and my life on an everyday basis. And these truths to me, as far as my own personal view of it and the years I spent in the Word of God, coming through the Bible a few times, I'm telling you, I think the whole Bible is built around these couple of concepts, and they're incredible concepts. Now, the first concept I want you to see here, wow, we can spend all morning on this, and I can't afford to because I got a lot of things I want to say. But look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 in verse 2. Chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter one down here at verse uh, 2, it says this. It says, There are 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barana. It says there are 11 days' journey. It says there are 11 days' journey. Look at verse 3. And it came to pass in the 40th year. You say, what does all that mean? It means this. God took them out of Egypt and wanted to take them to the promised land. Let me talk to you about the promised land for a minute. The promised land, wrongly taught today, is a picture of heaven. Every book you're going to buy in the promised land pictures the promised land as us getting to heaven. And of course, that's not true. That's typical of men that don't understand the Bible and don't understand how the Bible is put together. The promised land was never has been nor never will be a picture of you and me going to heaven. No, no, no. That is the place where the nation of Israel, when he went into, it was an inheritance that God gave them. It was a literal, physical land that God gave them, and he said, it's your land, I'm giving it to you. But here's the deal. you got to believe my book and keep the promises of my book, and as long as you do, 
all those nations out there that hate you, all those other nations that want to see your demise and want to see you die and want you kicked out of that land, all those nations will never be able to touch you because you simply live by the promises of my word. And as long as you live by my promises, you will get to stay in the promised land. When you forsake those promises, which they did, what happened? 606 B.C. God gave them time after time after time. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Time after time after time, God said, get it straight. Get it right. He sent them prophets. He sent them preachers. He sent them men who said, come back to God. Get back in the book. Get back in the book. What did they do? They didn't do it. And in 606 B.C., God sent down Nebuchadnezzar and kicked them out of the land, and they are no longer in the promised land. That promised land is not a picture of heaven. That promised land is for you and for me, is a picture of the place in your Christian life where you get that you're living in this world. This world is wicked. This world is against everything that God stands for, and yet you and I simply live in this wicked world by the promises of God. You have to come to the place in your life well, you get so in tune with that book. That's why I want to help you learn the Bible. That's why it's the most important thing. That's why I'll do anything to help you at your convenience to learn that Bible because the promised land for you and for me isn't dying and going to heaven. It's living in this wicked world and being successful by the promises of God. Now, I said all that to say this. 11-day journey took them 40 years. You can get as much out of God as fast as you want. You can get the God where you're living by those promises in a very short time in your life, or you can take you 40 years of wandering to try to get there. I've known some of God's people, and I, when I start talking like this, let me just say this to you. I'm not talking about people who <clears throat> you just suddenly found out that there is a God and there is a Bible, and you really want to learn it. I'm not talking about that. When I start talking like this, I give anybody in this building five years grace without ever, you can do it. If you've been saved five years or less, don't even listen to it. Well, don't listen to it, but don't take it personal. I'm not talking to you. I give you five years grace. But let me ask you, why aren't you farther along in the Word of God than you are? Why are you still struggling with the same things you were struggling with four or five years ago? Uh, the answer is in one word, wandering. You can get the God and the promises of God. Hey, I got people that I'm meeting with in the Word of God right now that I'm teaching a Bible that in the short time that we've got, they know more Bible and apply more Bible than most of God's people and say for 20 years. Why? Attitude. How quick do you want to get there? How quick do you, how much of a priority is it for you? Oh, it's going to be tough getting through this today because I'm hung up here. How much of a priority is it for you to learn that book? Now, we live in a day and age, we live in a day and age where we all like to be victims. We live in a society that says you're not responsible, you're not accountable. When some guy goes out and murders 28 people, the first thing the defense throws up is he's not responsible. He's either mentally deranged, or he had a bad upbringing with his parents, he had a bad relationship with his father. Therefore, that's what really kicked him off. And there he is. He went out there and killed those people. He's really not responsible. We find somebody who goes out and rapes women. And they simply say, first offense comes up. He's not responsible. We find people who are drug addicts. 
First thing, he's not responsible. It's not a sin, it's a sickness. We find people who are alcoholics, and we say, it's not a sin, it's a sickness. Let me tell you something. As much as any time you and I cut our old nature slack, we're going to take that position and we're going to deny accountability. And this whole world that we live in, this whole society that we live in, wants to play the victim. And we want to take no responsibility for our failures. We want to take no responsibility, no accountability for where we're at. Well, let me tell you something. I don't care what your upbringing was. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care, and I'm sorry. I don't care if it was terrible. I don't care what it is. The Bible says, the day you get saved, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. You're a victim one time. I said, you're a victim one time. After that, you're a volunteer. You're a victim one time. After that, you're a volunteer. You have to understand that there is a personal responsibility and a personal accountability. As a child of God, I'm not responsible for the things that happen to me. As a child of God, I'm not responsible for the bad things that fall on me. As a child of God, I am responsible how I deal with it. We talked about it the last couple of weeks, turning to God or turning from God. But we live in a world where everybody wants to just blame it on somebody else. Oh, every time, we, every time you, you start to talk to somebody and they start to give you a reason why they're not farther along in the Bible, it'll be somebody else's fault. It'll be, well, my mother and dad didn't raise me upright. It'll be, well, this or that. We have it all, you know, I mean, it was a time in this country that when you were a drunk, you were a drunk. But oh no, we want drunkenness not as a sin. We want it as a sickness. So now there's no drunks in America. There are only chronic alcoholics. Sounds good. Almost want to be one. But there was a time when homosexuality and lesbianism and all the other child uh, pornography and that stuff was perversion. It's not perversion anymore. It is, an, it is a, just an alternative lifestyle. It used to be a time that when you, were a, when you were a drug addict, you were a dopehead. Back in the 20s and back in the 30s when Gene Krupa, the famous drummer, got beaten around who could beat on drums, got hung up on marijuana, when he began to play, the, the teenagers booed him, wouldn't go to hear him play because he was on drugs. Now, you couldn't find a drug addict in America if your life depended on it. Now, we're substance abusers. We make everything from sin to being a sickness. And in doing so, we give human nature exactly what it doesn't want or it doesn't need. And that is an alibi. Let me tell you something. You can get to God and live in the promised land as quickly as you want. There's only one person, only one thing, only one element that'll stop you from being what God wants you to be, and my friend, that is you. And you can blame it on everything and everybody. I listened to a TV program the other day, and I, 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 get, I just get my blood going. And they're talking about there, and they had all these adults, and they were sitting around and, they, and, and blaming their failures because they, 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 they were not productive, they were dysfunctional. And they all sat around and they were talking about having ADS, adult deficiency syndrome. 
and he would blame me on the fact that, of this and blame me on the fact of that. And I sat there and I thought, you know what? That's my problem. That's my problem. Except I have SADS. I have selective adult deficiency syndrome. I choose what I don't want to get messed with. And that's the way we are. We think, well, you know what? That's, that's, it's because of, of this. Or I have, no, you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's because of a lack of discipline in your life. That's what it is. It, it comes from your lack of ability to discipline yourself with that book. And that's not easy. But you know what? It ain't any easier for me than it is for you. It isn't. We like to pretend it is. If there's one thing I've learned over the years, it is simply this. Denial is more than a river in Egypt. <laughs> it is the place that we like to live, where we like to excuse ourselves from any personal accountability. We don't want to be disciplined because we are lazy. We don't want to think because our minds are lazy. We don't want to focus because we run around and sit and watch television instead of studying. We, wouldn't, we would never pick up the Bible. And now we're so far bad that when we do pick up the Bible, I can't get anything from it. No. And the reason you can't, because a long time ago, you chose not to. And until you choose to do it, you're going to wonder. If there's anything I've learned about this book, everything I learned about God and the Bible is that we are all the same. I am no better than you are. Some of you in here, and this is the question you got to deal with. I'm sorry. Some of you in here know much more of the Bible than others, and you've been saved in a lesser amount of time. Giving everybody five years, giving new Christians a free walk. I'm talking about you who have been around forever. And I'm not talking about the fact, well, maybe you just found out where the real Bible was and now you're getting plugged in. I'm not even talking to you. I'm talking about your garden variety Christian who goes through his or her life and never gets to the place where he can live by the promises of God and it's always somebody else's fault. It's your fault. You can be there in 11 days or 40 years. Your choice. They could have been there in an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. And it wasn't the Amalekites' fault. It wasn't the Jebusites' fault. It wasn't the Moabites. It wasn't any of their enemies because God said, if you just stay in my book, I'll take care of the enemies. It was their fault. They chose something else over that book. Chapter 1 is a picture of a Christian who has God. He has the Spirit of God. He has the Word of God. But they never grow. They're always fearful. They're always choosing to be a victim. They never stand up and say, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. I heard a lady one time in a, talking about a rape class, and the counselor said, well, what would you do if you were raped? And she said, you know what? They'd have to kill me. I would never submit to being raped. She says, I don't care who it was or how many it was. I would fight them with every breath that I have. And if they were going to rape me, it was going to be my dead body and not my live body. Well, let me just say this. If an unsaved woman can come to that kind of conclusion about her physical body that she's not going to let somebody else violate her and she is willing to die in the process, God, people need that same time of tenacity in their lives to say, you know what, I don't care what it takes. This world is not going to have me. I'm going to fight. 
and I may die in the process, but I'm going to fight. I would rather die in the process of fighting this world than die in the process of being in this world. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, the great, great book, a great chapter in Hebrews on God's Hall of Fame. You know what it says about Moses? It said about Moses, choosing to suffer the afflictions of God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, it's a choice. Always is, always will be. Don't you give me this victim crap. You're a victim the first time you're a full-fledged volunteer with a bow tie and a uniform and your little name tag the second time. It's your choice. Next thing I see, second giving of the law in chapter 5 and 6. He gives the Old Testament again. And the reason why he gives the Old Testament again in chapter 6 is because they wandered for 40 years. And for 40 years they had to wander to all that generation died. And the only their children could go in. But when you study chapter 5 and chapter 6, those, that generation that died never told their children about what God had done. They had no understanding of the heritage of the great victories and miracles that God had done. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in every family, in every situation, you find what I call the generation syndrome. That's simply this. Your kids, the generation below you, will be worse than you are. And that generation will be worse than they are. And that's how it degenerates. It doesn't run up, it runs down. Unless God interjects himself into your life and into your family. That God is the process that keeps the decay from happening. But it's going to happen if you don't do it. And as you don't do it, you're going to find that it breaks down and it, it, just like it did in Israel. And you're going to find this generation syndrome where the next generation is worse than the last and the next one is worse than that one. And pretty soon you're down in the debasement of this old world just like we are today. There is still some morality in the 40s. There is no morality in the 90s and the 2001s. Why? The generations have degenerated. And we see now the sins that mom and dad used to do that were hidden. Now they begin to get in them when they're in the fourth and fifth grade. You had to be 20 or 30 before you got into drugs back in the 30s and the 40s. Today our children are, are giving it when they're in the fourth and fifth grade. Premarital sex was something that didn't happen until you were a teenager in college, the big frat party. Now it happens when they're in the sixth and the seventh grade. Why? The generation syndrome. And if you don't have something coming into your family, into your personal life. And that's what he says in chapter 6. In chapter 6 he comes down through there. And he says, verses 4 and 9, he says, you take your children and you teach them. You talk to them. Day and night, you make God a household word. He says, you talk about what God has done for you. You let them know that God is powerful in your life. You let them know as mom and dad, you fear God. All my life, I've had parents come in and, 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 want to, and try to talk to me about their bad kids. And all my life, I, I, I always operate by the principles. I'm a very principled person when it comes to the Bible. And it's simply this. I learned a long time ago that every principle in that book is how i got to live my life. Now, I don't know them all, and I don't do them all, but I know enough that I don't get myself behoozled by somebody wanting to come in and play with my mind. 
Somebody will come in and say, over the years, well, Brother Bob, I just can't tell you how my kids are disrupting my home. I can't tell you the problems my kids are causing in my home. Now, see, that's, you say that to the preacher, he's supposed to respond with, well, brother, you know them kids, they're pretty terrible, da 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 and he goes out happy, you go out happy, and everybody's happy. But that ain't the problem. Let me tell you something. Kids don't cause problems in the home. Kids just reveal the problems that are already there. Principle. Principle. Your kids don't cause problems in the home, rebellious kids. I mean, every kid has his problems. Look at the Steinmetz boys. I'm not talking about boys being boys or even girls. I had, boy, I had some time with my kids. But see, my problem is simple. I just gave them two baseball bats, put them on the backyard, and said, and one of the winds come in and see me, and the other one will take you to the hospital. So we, nah, not really. But anyway, I'm telling you, kids don't cause problems in the home. Kids reveal the problems that are already there. And he says in chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, he says you teach them. You talk to them day and night. Talk about God. He says you make it a household world. He says put it on the posts and the gates. Put it where they can see it. Put it on your refrigerator. Hey, I'm going to tell you something right now. I can walk into a kid's bedroom and see what pictures he's got on the wall, what posts he's got on the wall. I can tell you where he's at with God. I don't need to sit out and, and look deep inside his heart. I'm telling you, man, that Bible says it's the things of God that we ought to put up, the things of God that ought to be in front of us day and night. He says down there in chapter 6, verse 20 and 25, when his kid says, hey, Dad, what, what means all this? What meaneth this? What is all this about God? Tell him. Tell him what God has done. Tell him where you've come from. Tell him where you were a sinner. Tell him how God saved you. Tell him how God made a difference in your life. Tell him where you fail. Tell him where you love the book. Tell him. This is where Israel failed. This is where the church has failed. And that's why it's called the book of Deuteronomy. Deutero. Two. The book of Deuteronomy simply means second giving of the law. You know why? Because the nation of Israel didn't give that law down to their heritage or their kids, and God had to come back because of their wickedness and give them that law a second time because nobody in the nation of Israel carried through with their children. You wonder what's wrong with America today? That's what's wrong with America. Oh, we're religious, so was Israel. Oh, we go to church, so did Israel. Oh, we do all the things, so did they. The bottom line is, my friend, <laughs> it's like I've told you before. When you want to witness to somebody, don't tell them what God can do for them. Tell them what God did for you. I can tell anybody what God will do for them. It's something else for me to tell them what God has done for me. When I sit down to deal with somebody in a problem in their life, I don't just tell them what God can do for them. I take them back and show them what God has done for me. You need to have a heritage for your children that they understand that mom and dad, they've come from Egypt. They're saved. They're born again. And yes, they're not perfect, but they love that book. And they've got standards of holiness just like they did in the Old Testament. But they didn't. And when they didn't, they lost that generation. And God had to tell Moses, write that book, Deuteronomy, second giving. Well, they screwed it up the first time. So did we. Then jumping back to chapter 4. You see, when you lose sight of God, 
then you pick up other gods. And in chapter 4, verse 15 through 19, you find all the things that Israel weren't supposed to make equated to God. You find the fish. You find the, the, all the little artifacts of birds and animals. All the things that Christians today like to make their little Christian seals. Uh, God's people, without a doubt, are the dumbest people the world has ever seen. I don't know how many times I've been someplace in, in a church situation. I'm not fighting anybody. Stupidity is a, is a, is a common thing. It's all right. I don't know how many times I, 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 I've, I've seen them wear that little five-pointed star. And they'll walk around. And I'll, I remember one time we were on a mission trip. We had a missionary, a, a, a pastor and his wife with us. And, and, and she was kind of a fluty little gal. And, 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 it, and she was giving me a tough time because of what I believed. So I figured, you know what, let's see. You can dish it out and see if you can take it. We were on the bus one day and she had a little five-pointed star. Star of David. I'll tell you what. Right now before we go any farther, in case you're already mad at me. I'll give you a million dollars. Show me where in that Bible where that five-pointed star is the star of David. You said, Bob, a million bucks. You don't even have a million bucks. Well, let me tell you something, Bozo. I could get it together before you could find the verse. And I said to her, I said, what is that? She says, oh, that's the star of David. Why are you wearing it? Are you Jewish? No, I'm a Christian Jew. I said, that's great. Star of David, five-pointed. Huh. I'd like to get my wife one of them. Where do you buy that? She said, oh, you get it at a Christian bookstore. Oh, I said, great. I said, I've heard a lot about drug paraphernalia. I haven't heard a lot about Christian paraphernalia. Five stone and star of David. I said, hmm, where's that at in the Bible? She said, well, I don't know. But I'm sure it's in there. And I said, oh, it's in there. I took her over to Acts chapter 7. Took her back to the book of Hosea. Or Amos. Amos 5, 26, Acts chapter 7, verse 43, says that five-pointed star was the star there, God Rephidim. Israel got that five-pointed star when they got into apostasy. They made that up after a false god they were worshiping. And here we are, stupid, dumb, 20th century Christians, thinking, ooh, look at that. I got to get me one of them. Yeah, put your demon star on you and walk around. Because that's all you got. But you know what? That's the Bible. And in chapter 4, he goes through it over and over and over again. Over and over again. He tells them, no fishes, no birds, no animals. You didn't see any similitude of any four-footed beast or this or that when you met God down there. He just gave you ten commandments, his word. It's all you need. All down through the apostasy of Israel. You know what they're doing? They're going after God. Remember last week I told you about the brazen serpent? Well, you go a little bit later on in the Bible, you know what they did with that brazen serpent? They're worshiping it. They're holding it up, and they think that it's something to do with God. They're worshiping it. God said over and over, you don't make any likeness of any image. Thou shalt have no other God before me, and a child of God just shouldn't walk around with a demon God's emblem on their chest. I'm sorry, but it's okay. Acts chapter 7. Oh, Acts chapter 7. We better bypass this one. The ages of ages. He says in chapter 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now I'm going to tell you something. This is very prophetic. 
I don't know how deep to get into this, and this is something I'll, if you want to bring it out on a Thursday night Bible study, I'd be glad to take you where I can go with it. But I'll tell you, here it is. God said to the nation of Israel, once you get your millennial kingdom, that thing's going to endure for a thousand generations. That has never been fulfilled. The old-time Bible students, the old-time Philadelphian Bible preachers put this down there between Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, and somewhere there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, about the ages to come. Here's what you got. Someplace after the millennium, and you know the events, rapture of the church, any second. Tribulation, seven years. Christ comes back, <coughs> millennium, a thousand years. At the end of that millennium, it's commonly taught that eternity starts. <clears throat> well, that's the short way to teach it. <clears throat> that isn't exactly true. You've got a period of time from the end of the millennium before eternity starts <clears throat> that God promised Israel that he'd give them a thousand generations. Now, here's the other problem you got. There's four or five different generations in the Bible. That thing could run 33,000 years because that's a generation. It could run 47,000 years. That's a generation. It could run 70,000 years. That's a generation. It could run 100,000 years. A hundred's a generation. In other words, at the end of the millennium, you have somewhere between at the low side, 33,000, on the high side, 100,000 years that Israel is going to get what God promised them in Deuteronomy chapter 7 about the ages of ages. And I don't understand it all. I never read anybody that did. But there seems to be a period of time where God is going to give to Israel that promise that he is going to manifest more than just a thousand years that they are going to have a thousand generations where God is on that throne before eternity starts. Pretty wild. And if I were you, when you come to that passage, i just put down there the ages of ages and I'd put those reference verses. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Ask me Thursday night, I'll go through a little bit more and show you how those things all relate. Can't do it now. And some of this stuff you're just going to have to put down and then we'll come back and fill up the pieces later. Chapter 13 through chapter 18. Oh, here's one for your tool belt. And as a Christian, as a Christian, there are things that you're going to learn in that Bible that are going to become tools you use all the time. They're principles. We talked about this last Thursday night. I told you how that one of the things that you know is you can always stay with the principles because God never violates his principles. When God sets down a principle, he never violates it. So you don't ever violate it. And when you find somebody that does violate it, you know what you're dealing with. Because here's the deal. They're going to, once you get saved, and before you get your feet firmly planted in this book, there are going to be people showing up in your life, saved and unsaved, claiming to be God's man, claiming to have a message from God. And the only thing that's going to keep you from getting messed up and falling into their trap is understanding biblical principles are absolute. And God never violates or moves off of his principles. Now that's what Deuteronomy chapter 18 deals with, because here's the problem. He's been telling all through this, these couple of chapters, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to send you this prophet. This prophet's going to preach. This prophet's going to teach. Follow the prophets. And then somebody says this, hey, Lord, that's all fine and good. But we also know there's false prophets. How are we going to know the true prophet from the false prophet? 
Give us a gauge. Give us a standard. How am I going to know in the day and age that I live in? How am I going? How do I know? How many times have you heard it? How do you know what religion is true? How many times have you heard it? Now, I'm not saying the Baptists are the only religion. In fact, I think there'd be more Baptists in hell probably than anybody else. I'm not a Baptist. You say, well, this is called Old Paz Baptist Church. Yeah, but that's because we didn't know what else to call it. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I go by the principles found in the Word of God. Only thing I operate by. He says in 1820, how do you know? But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. He says, okay, you're going to have men come in and they're going to speak in name of other gods or they're going to lie to you. And you're going to find these people, saved people and unsaved people. They're going to come into your life and they're going to lie to you because they want to discourage you or they want to trap you or they want to get you to the place where you lose faith in God and you become what they are. Now I'm telling you, you better get it straight. If you're going to take a stand for that book like we talked about last week, you're going to have people who hate you for that stand. And they are going to do everything they can to lie about you, to destroy your character, and to get you to quit. They're going to get you to lose faith. They're going to try to get you to come to the point where you get discouraged. And, I'm, and they want to suck you into their cult. Now he said, a prophet presumed to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded, or he speaks in another name. He says, you kill him. We can't do that today, but in the Old Testament, they did. Verse 21, and if thou say in thine heart, key word, somebody really wanting to do what's right. And if thou say in thy heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? How do we know? Lord, come on. Somebody comes to me and says this. Somebody comes to me and says this. Somebody comes to me and says that. Somebody comes to me and says, well, that's not right. This is the way it is. How do I know? This is a question that you asked Thursday night. You got these people out there that claim to do things in God's name. When I was growing up with Jean Dixon, she claimed to do it in God's name. And she made predictions, all kinds of predictions. Somebody says, well, she claims to be, do it for God. She claims to be right. She doesn't do anything wicked. What's wrong with it? How do you know? If you say in your heart, which many people do, how do you know which prophet is true and which one is not true? Here it comes. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if a thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is a thing which the Lord hath not spoken. Real easy, isn't it? Now, you know what? If you get that concept down right there, you have eliminated 99% of the problems in your life by one principle. One principle. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, that Jesus Christ has a testimony. Now, we all have testimonies. We talk about having a good testimony. When you're out in the world and you do what the world does and they know you're a Christian, that's a bad testimony. But we don't ever stop and think much about Christ losing his testimony. But you know he could? You know what Jesus Christ's testimony is? It's not that he would go out to get drunk. It's not that he would go do this or do that. 
No, no. The testimony of Jesus Christ is defined for you in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. You know what it is? The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. You know what that means? He put himself under his own principles. You know what he told you in Deuteronomy chapter 18? He says, if you find a prophet that says something's going to come to pass or something's going to happen or this is going to take place and it doesn't, that is not the prophet. He put himself under that. That's why I know this book is absolute. That's why I know it had nothing to do with man. If that book has one mistake in it, if there's one prophecy that falls through, if there's one thing that Jesus said that was going to happen that didn't happen, then he's in the trash bin with all the rest of them. Now, I don't know if you know it or not. In your Old Testament, there's 48 prophecies about one man. Those 48 prophecies are about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're given 600 to 1,000 years before he was born. Those 48 prophecies have to do with when he was born, where he would be born, how he was going to die, where he was going to live, what age he was going to be when he died. All the implements of a man's life that would be absolutely impossible to foretell 600 to 1,000 years. In fact, when they took those 48 prophecies and ran them through a computer to find out the odds against 48 prophecies about Jesus Christ coming to pass 600 to 1,000 years before he came, those 48 prophecies, the chances against those 48 prophecies coming to pass on the day, the hour, and the time that the Bible said that they would are 10 to the 157th power. That is 10 with 157 zeros on it. Say, how, how, how big's that number? I know, 10 with 157 zeros. How big is that number? There aren't that many electrons in the universe. And my friend, go home in your little dresser, Pull out your little hat pin, hold that pin up, look at that little flat head of that pin, you can get 100 million electrons on the head of that pin. And there aren't 10 with 157 power electrons in the whole universe. That was the chances against 48 prophecies coming to pass, and every one of those prophecies was fulfilled, the first coming of Christ. You can't beat it. Now, I don't know how you deal with people. But I, I deal with people on that principle. I do. And somebody says, well, what about all these other religions? Well, I don't, I, that's how I go. You know how I know the charismatic uh, uh, mess isn't of God? I'll tell you why. The first time you have one healing it doesn't take, it's wrong. He said here, one time. And then the charismatic comes back and says, well, wait a minute. You, that guy didn't get healed because he didn't have enough faith. Principle. Jesus read dead people. How much faith can a dead man have? You see, you think I'm as stupid as you are. I was a couple of years ago, five or six years ago. I always have one of these ready. I'll make one of these for you if you want. I saw two guys coming down the street. Recognized them immediately as Jehovah Witnesses. Big guy and little guy. I played dumb, was in the house, knocked on the door, walked out, said, yes. He said, hi. I said, hi. My name is Bob Alexander. And, I, and they said, well, we just wanted to know uh, where you go to church. We'd like to talk to you about the Bible. And I said, hey, I'd love to talk about the Bible. Where you go to church? Well, I'm a Jehovah Witness. Little guy looked at the big guy and he said, well, we all know all the Jehovah Witnesses. How, did you just move here? No, I lived here 20 years. Well, where, how'd you become a Jehovah Witness? I, we don't, we, where do you go? And I said, well, I became a Jehovah Witness about 24 years ago when I accepted 
Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, my own personal Savior. And I asked Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, to save me from a literal burning hell. And I read in the book of Acts chapter 1, it says that ye shall be my witnesses. I said, therefore, I'm a Jehovah witness. <laughs> Little guy looked at the big guy, looked back at me, and said, well, that's not the kind we are. I said, that's the only kind there is. You guys must be phonies. And then he said, well, we want to talk to you about the Bible. And I said, good. I reached up and pulled my little sheet down here. You see, you may go and talk with them about hell, 144,000. I don't ever mess with that. I found a long time ago, every cult has, you never attack the cult at its front door. You always go into the screen door that's unlocked. Or the wind is just a little way up. And while he's up there watching the front door, that's all his pet doctrines he's got the answers to, you sneak up behind him and go, boo! Get him. So I always keep this right up my window there by the door. And I pulled it down. I said, good, I'm glad you're here. Let me ask you a question. I said, you have a Bible? Yeah, what kind of Bible do you have? We have a New World Translation. That'll do, open it up. I read Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says the same thing it does in mine. I said, who would judge? I said, who would judge Russell? Well, he's the founder of our religion. I said, who's, Ru who's Rutherford? He's the founder of our religion too. I said, so those two guys were the founders, right? He says, yes. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. You believe everything in the Bible? Yeah. Explain to me what Deuteronomy chapter 18, I just read. What's that mean? He said, that means that if a prophet claims to be the prophet of God and he says so that it doesn't come to pass, he's not the prophet. I said, you agree with that, big man? Yeah. How about you, guy? You believe with it? Yeah. Okay, me too. All right, let me ask you a question. In 1889, Russell, in his book, Time is at Hand, page 248, said that the second coming of Christ was going to come in 1914. We're still here. Two, 1904, Russell's book, New Creation, page 328. He said the second coming of Christ was going to be here between 1910 and 1912. Next, 1920, in his book, Rutherford, Millions Now Living Will Never Die. He says the second coming of Christ will take place at the end of 1925. I said, did it ever happen? No. Then according to what you just said, you guys are false cults. Because my Bible, principle, principle, principle says, if it doesn't come to pass, that's not the prophet. Principle. You don't have to get hung up in it. You don't have to get hung up in it. You follow the principles. I got a book that the chances against 148 prophecies against it are 10 to the 157th power and more electrons in the universe and every one came true at the first coming of Christ. Let me tell you something. That book is absolute and you don't have to worry about whether you be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. That ain't the issue. The issue is, do you have a book and do you believe it and can you believe it and does it have enough power in it to save you? That's the Bible. And if you want to know who's telling you right, who's telling you wrong, just get the principles. All my life, there have been people telling me one thing, but my Bible says something else. And for some reason, I don't understand it. God's people just can't get it. Why are you so taken in with all of this stuff when you have a Bible right in front of you? And I'm telling you, if you're going to take a stand for God, you're going to get it from the unsaved world and from the saved world. And they're going to target you just like the cults do to try to get you because they prey on weak Christians. They prey on people who are wandering, who have never got to the promised land, and they wander, and those are the ones that they feed on. Then you have saved people. They see you. 
And they're out in the world. They're not doing what's right. They don't like the Bible. They don't like God. But they want to maintain their Christian respectability. And so they see you on fire for God. And they're going to try to discourage you. I remember years ago when I was growing up. There were two men in my life. And those two men were. I mean they were, they were my mentor as far as learning the Bible. And I'm not saying they were God. They were men. They had their faults just like everybody else. But I watched growing up around them. I could not understand why everybody hated them. I could not understand why everybody was against them. And, 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 and it, it came to me one day. I'd have other, other preachers come to me and they would say, well, you need to be careful of so-and-so over here. No, he'll, he's a little too radical. And they would say all kinds of things, things that would assassinate their character. Things. And I finally came down to it, and I asked one of them one time. I said, man, why do you get kicked from one end of the other to the other? And he said, it's simple, Bob. And he said, you better learn it. And I'm telling you, because you better learn it. He said, you know what? I made up my mind a long time ago I was going to stand for that book. And when you stand for that book, you're going to come into close contact and close proximity with a lot of God's people that don't love that book. And they don't want anything to do with it. They want to maintain their nice little oozy-goozy lives without the power of God in it. And they're comfortable and they can get away with it till you show up. And then you come in with your 25-pound King James Bible with all your Bible verse sporting off the mouth. And you know what it does? It's like somebody turning a light on in the kitchen in the middle of the night and all the cockroaches are caught. And I learned principles, principles, principles. <clears throat> I learned very quickly who's right and who's wrong. <clears throat> principles. I'll tell you, and he told me this. He said, you know what, Bob? He says, I've learned. He said, I never get worried what people say about me. He said, I never take it serious. What I take serious is when people come and talk to me about something. And I thought to myself, that's a profound thing. He said, because the people are going to say things about you, true or not true, all your life. And they're going to lie about you on the job. And I know that's true because I've talked to some of you in here that are working out in a factory someplace or out here, and you know that's true. That's exactly what happens. And he said, I, I, never, I never worried about what people said about me. I always took seriously what they came and talked to me about. And I learned from that oh, over the years. And the next time somebody came up to me about my father in the Lord and said something about me, the first thing I would say is this. I'd say, let me ask you a question. Did you go talk to him? Well, no, I haven't. Then what are you talking to me for? Principle. I don't have a problem with him. You obviously do. Why don't you go talk to him? Now, here's the impression you're giving me. You're giving me the impression that you're right because you're spiritual and you can see all these things, and he's wrong. Okay? If that's true... Why are you violating principles? Go talk to him. And if you go talk to him, work it out with him. Why are you bringing it to me? Are you trying to discourage me in my faith? Are you trying to, are you trying to hurt me? Are you a satanic implant? What's the deal? I'm telling you, whether it's saved or whether it's lost, it's principles. God gave you a book of principles. When the Jehovah Witnesses come... Principle, Deuteronomy chapter 18. When somebody in your own Christian life comes in and they try to discourage you, principles, you have to take charge. You have to be the one that says, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong. You got a problem with Sabaka? Go talk to Sabaka. Don't come to me. I can't solve your problem. But I'm telling you, 
You better learn a lesson like I had to learn it. You better learn a lesson like I had to learn it. Like every strong Christian in this room had to learn it. And they know what I'm talking about in their own personal lives. When you take a stand for the Word of God, you're going to pay the price. Not only from the world. First, Second Corinthians chapter 2 says it so clearly. He says when you give God the honor and glory that men see it, and because they're not doing it, it's a witness against them. Oh, I'm telling you, these are great principles in the book of Deuteronomy. The last thing that Moses writes, then in chapter 21 and 22, we find the great chapter on what the nation of Israel has to do because they killed Christ. Oh, yeah, long before Christ ever shows up. It's put in the form of one slain in the land back here in chapter 21. And nobody, nobody brought the trial on it. And nobody knows for sure who's brought the trial, who killed it, but they find one slain in the land. And nobody covers the blood. That man is Christ. You come down to verse 3, and they get a, he a heifer, take him down to a rough valley. That's Gehenna, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The priest have to do it. And see, Israel can't do it right now because nobody knows who the priests are. But there's coming a day when they're going to learn who the priests are in the tribulation, and then they're going to perform this in the tribulation period. The elders wash their hands, just like Pilate did. He knew what the Old Testament said. And then suddenly in chapter 21, verses 8, 9, and 10, this story suddenly changes, and now it's the nation of Israel. And lo and behold, in chapter 21, verse 21, 22, 23, it's a picture of the crucifixion. And the thing we have to get, the thing that Israel has to do is get clean from the innocent blood. That's exactly what Paul and Stephen are preaching in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. All this is prophetic. It all shows you what Israel has to do because all this deals with Israel getting back right with God. In chapter 23 and 24, the Old Testament law and putting away your wife or divorce. Every, every seminar I ever heard in my life, every book I ever read in my life, every tape I ever listened to in my life, once to talk to the church about divorce and remarriage, go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 19. Those are the standard teachings for divorce and remarriage in the Christian circles. And you know what? That's not the teaching for the church. The church teaching for the church on divorce and remarriage is not found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's Old Testament. Not found in Matthew chapter 19. That's Old Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The whole chapter, verse by verse, lays out every aspect of everything you need to understand how the church is to deal with that issue. Matthew chapter 23 and 24 is how Israel dealt with it. Then in chapter 27, 28, and 29, you have the cursings and the blessings on Israel for their disobedience or for their obedience. The great three chapters on showing you that God tells Israel, you know what, if you do what's right in the Word of God, I'll take care of you. I'll be there for you. Nobody will ever hurt you. My blessings will be on you and nobody will ever touch you. But if you don't, then my hand will be against you. And I'll take your enemies, and my enemies will whip you. And he says over and over again, your whole success of the promised land, your whole success of staying in that land by the promises of God are based on the blessings of God, which are based on the Word of God. And I'm telling you and me, if you ever want to get to the place, took them 40 years for an 11-day journey. But if you want to get to the place in your life where you can be where God wants you to be and live by the promises of God, you are going to have to have the blessings of God, and that only comes by obedience to God. Oh, what a great three chapters it is. Then in chapter 32 through chapter 33, Song of Moses, he sings about the greatness of God. 
Chapter 4, he says, and what a great verse this is. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. All through here, he talks about God's people going to be the premier people. And all the world is set up after the 12 tribes. He gives the Jews civil rights that nobody else has. He gives them religious rights that nobody else has. He gives them material possession that nobody else gets. He talks about in chapter 32, two rocks, two cups, two vines, two kinds of blood, two kinds of drink. I'm telling you, the whole thing lays out and shows you the greatness of God built around the devil's crowd and built around God's crowd. Oh, the book of Deuteronomy. What a great book. And then chapter 34. And we're done. But oh, chapter 34, the death of Moses. As far as I'm thinking, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. One of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Somebody says, really? Well, it just says in verse 5 that he dies and no man knoweth the sepulcher under this day. Oh, no, 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 more to it than that. Oh, no. This is the last thing Moses writes. And this is the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. And boy, it shows God's perspective on some things. And you better learn this. you got to learn this. Oh, I've tried to jam a lot of things in today. But if you don't go home with anything else but this, you got to get this. Here's the picture. Here's the picture. They're all Israel. Been wandering for 40 years. They finally got there. Could have been there in 11 days. Took them 40 years. And now they're all camped on this side of Jordan. Getting ready to go over. And it's the night before they're going over. Oh, and they're sitting around that camp, fires burning. They're talking about how long a journey it's been, how excited they are. They're talking about getting to the promised land finally, and Moses is walking through the camp like every good commander. And he's shaking hands, and their people are standing up and saluting him, and he's talking to them, and they're thanking him for getting them that par and, what a, and all the things that God's done with him. And he's saying this and saying that, and checking on all the tribes and making sure everything is all right. He's saying to himself, boy, it's been a long 40 years. About that time, he sees this man walking through the camp, and he recognizes him. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He recognized him because he'd walked with him for many, many years. Moses is 120 years old now. He'd walked with God for a lot of years. He walks over there, and he says, Evening, Lord. Good to see you down here. Just kind of walking through the camp. The Lord says, Yeah, I am, Moses. Come down and have a little talk with you. He says, well, good. Lord says, come on, walk with me. He says, yes, sir. About that time, Moses said, Lord, I want to tell you something. I know it was a long 40 years. I'll tell you, Lord, I know it was tough. And I know there were times when I failed you. There was times that the nation failed you. But, Lord, I want you to know there's never a time that you failed us. And, Lord, I just want to say this. We've been together through some things. And I want to tell you I love you. And you're my friend. And I couldn't ever get to where I was. I remember the first time I met you back there at that burning bush and how feeble I was. And Moses, God says, yeah, I still remember. I remember how proud you were when you threw that stick down, Moses, and it turned into a snake. Moses said, yeah. And then God said, and then I remembered how scared you were when I told you to pick it up. You were dancing around that snake like, well, you know, it was all right when it was a stick, but when you had to pick it up. And he said, yeah, I was pretty stupid back then. God said, yeah, but you've come a ways, Moses, and you're my friend too. Moses said, boy, you know what? Everybody's excited. God said, yeah, I see it in the camp. Everybody's fired up. He said, yeah, it's been a long time, but we're going to go over tomorrow. And the Lord said, Moses, I want to talk to you about that. Boy, I came down. You ain't going over tomorrow. He said, what? Moses, you're not going over with the people tomorrow. He said, well, Lord, I don't understand. After all I've been through, 
40 years in the wilderness, <coughs> 40 years on the backside of the desert, down there before Pharaoh and all this. And I, I know I made some mistakes, but I, I, you can't tell me tonight, the day before we're going to go over, that I, I'm not going over? He says, no, Moses, you're not. He says, well, I, I don't understand. He says, he says, he says was, it, was, was that thing with that rock? The Lord says, yeah, it was, Moses. I told you to speak to that rock, and you smote it. He says, well, Lord, okay. So I smote the rock. I don't know what's the big deal. I'm not going to get to go into the promised land because I smote the rock when you said to speak to it. And Moses, God said, that's right, Moses, you're not. He said, but I don't see the big deal. He said, I know you don't. But that rock's a type of something. And when you hit that rock instead of speaking to it, you broke my principles. And I can't violate my own principles, Moses. And you can't go. <sighs> oh, Lord, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I just never had such a big disappointment. What am I going to tell everybody? He said, you ain't going to tell everybody. We ain't going back. He says, Lord, you know what that means to me to go over there. He said, yeah, I know. He says, Lord, just let me sneak over tonight. Just let me, just get, let me, I'll sneak over tonight. I'll be back in two hours. It's right across the river. Just let me get across there and just let me stand in that land that was promised. Because, Lord, I, I know what that is and I know the promise. And, Lord, just let me stand there. Five minutes, Lord, and I'll be back. And then whatever you want to do. If I can't go over, just let me sneak over. He says, I can't, Moses. You see, my principles are unchangeable. And I can't let you do it. He said, but I'll tell you what. I'll let you come back a little bit later and get in the land. He says, and I'll tell you something else, Moses. Come on. Boy put his arm around Moses, and they were walking that thing away from the camp. And he says, let me tell you something, Moses. He says, and I know you don't understand about that rock. But I won't tell you something. You better learn it, Moses. You don't always get everything down here. You see, you were living your life, Moses, like you had to get over to that land. And for you, that land is your inheritance. For us, it's the millennium. And he said, you don't always get it all down here, Moses. Sometimes I just put you down here to do the work, to do the dirty work, and then I pull you out before you get the blessings. You know why? Because the blessings aren't down here, Moses. They're over there. And Moses, don't ever forget that the blessings are over there because it's easy to think you're down here. And you want to get all satisfied, and you want to go over there. And you know what, Moses? It's easy to make that promised land so much important in your life that you forget about the one who got you there. And you're not going, Moses. Moses said, Okay, you know what, Lord? All along, these last three or four years, I thought you had something up your sleeve you wouldn't tell me about. The Lord gets that smile on his face that he does when you're sitting on the end of the tree branch and he's sitting back at the tree with a sock in his hand and a smile on his face, you know, been there. And he says, I'll tell you what, Moses, it's going to be okay, just trust me. Moses said, you know what? For 80 years, You've done me no wrong. I'll trust you. And I'll tell you what. There's lots of places I'd like to have been in the Bible. I'd like to have been at the resurrection when Christ came out of that tomb. I think that'd have been a great time. I'd like to have seen the Red Sea split. I think that'd have been neat. I especially like to have seen Pharaoh and his guys get drowned. But I'll tell you where I'd like to have been. I'd like to have been just a little off center listening to that conversation. Because I've had that conversation. And I like to just stand there as the whole camp was down there getting ready to go over. And all I saw was those two figures walking hand in hand up that mountain. The man who face to face talked to God like a man speaking to his friend. The man who had turned through the trials of Pharaoh. 
the man who went through the trials of the Red Sea, the man who put up every trial. And the Bible says at 120 years old, his eye was not dim, nor was his strength gone. He was just as strong in the day of 120 as it was the day God found him. You know what? And I watched those old two figures walk up that mountain together. And I walk them close, farther they get, the more okay it is. By the time they get up there, old Moses is swinging, singing in the sweet by and by. And they're talking about going up there and being with God. And Moses gets up there and looks back at that camp, sees that land over there. And he says, you know what, God? You know what, Father? Going with you is better than going over there. Because that isn't what it's all about. You're what it's all about. You don't always get it down here, folks. Sometimes God shuts it down so you lose everything you got. But you don't always get it down here. You get it over there. Sometimes God puts his arm around you and you walk up that mountain, boy, and you have to leave it all behind and you go with him. And when you come to that point in your life, Moses and God face to face, but God would not violate his own principles to let him go in even as much as he loved him. And I'm telling you, it's principles. And if you ever want to get the promises of God, if you ever want to live that life where you live by the promises in that book, you're going to have to principle yourself to the place where you discipline yourself that that book becomes everything in your life. And whatever God calls for you is okay with you. And boy, I see them arm in arm walking up that mountain in that old moonlight, disappearing in that mist. And the Bible says to this day, no man knows where Moses' sepulcher is. You know why? Because he went home to be with the God, with the Lord. And what a way to go. Every head bowed and every eye closed. The book of Deuteronomy.